Facebook Messenger is a chat application that millions of people use every day to talk to each other. Over time, Messenger has grown to include group chats, video chats, animations, facial filters, stories, and many more features. Messenger is a tool for utility as well as for entertainment. Messenger is used on both mobile and desktop, but the size of the mobile application is particularly important. There are many users who are on devices that do not have much storage space. As Messenger has accumulated features, the iOS codebase has grown larger and larger. Several generations of Facebook engineers have rotated through the company with responsibility of working on Facebook Messenger, and that has led to different ways of managing information within the same codebase. The iOS codebase had room for improvement, and Project Lightspeed was a project within Facebook that had the goal of making Messenger on iOS much smaller. Mosin Ogzin is an engineer with Facebook, and he joins the show to talk about the process of rewriting the Messenger app. This is a great deep dive into how to rewrite a mission-critical iOS application, and this team became very large at a certain point within Facebook. It's a great story, and I hope you enjoy it as well. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i. Mosin Axon, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Good morning. Hello. You worked on a rewrite of the Facebook Messenger app for iOS. Why was it so important to rewrite the entire application and reduce the size of the Messenger app? I think in our case, it was uh, kind of a matter of goal setting. We decided to go for a fairly ambitious goal and to basically become kind of the smallest messaging application in the world and preserve all the rich features that Messenger had. As we looked at our existing code base, we realized that would be a very difficult thing to do in a code base that had grown over five years. And we had actually spent about a year beforehand trying to make the existing product smaller and more modular. And we were reasonably successful, but not to the extent that we wanted. So at some point, we decided to kind of go for the more ambitious goal, which is, again, rare in this industry these days, of just a complete grounds-up rewrite of all the core messaging features. Doing a complete rewrite is generally not a great idea. It can be very risky. Yes. But sometimes it can be the right choice. How did you evaluate that option of doing a complete rewrite versus retaining a large portion of the code base? Yeah, I mean, I've been in the industry for a long time and I've seen a lot of, I mean, I think it's probably well known that most software rewrites fail. <laughs> so it's not something you want to take lightly, especially for these large complex projects. On the other hand, successful rewrites can be truly groundbreaking for the companies that pull them off. Obviously, you might be familiar with the history of Microsoft Windows and the transition from Windows 9X to Windows NT code base, or in Mac OS, the transition from Mac OS 9 
to the next step and ultimately what became Mac OS X transition, which ultimately gave birth to uh, iOS. So we obviously do not take that decision lightly. It's a very difficult decision. What we decided to do is actually kind of go through kind of a fairly lengthy prep process where instead of just replacing our existing product, for example, we built a new code base and we tried it on something like the Apple Watch and we released an Apple Watch version of Messenger, which was well received actually and did well. And so we went through a number of steps and it took about, I would say, almost about a year of decision-making and trial to make sure that we have made the right decision. So it wasn't, we kept weighing both options. Can we just take the technology, the new technology, and put it inside the existing product? Or are we better off rewriting? So I, again, we basically released two products. We released a, a watch product and we released a standalone a Messenger Lite iOS product. It wasn't released very broadly in some countries around the world. And those two in combination kind of gave us the signal that we needed and the confidence that we needed that it, this is something we can actually do. It would be difficult and it would take a while, which turns out to be very true, but we kind of went for it and we did it. Give me a brief history of how the size of the Messenger app has grown over time. I mean, when, yeah. when you sat down to rewrite yeah. this thing... There I don't was, have, uh, uh, yeah, Jeffrey, this is a great question. I don't actually have exact numbers. I recall a point where we were, for sure, we had approached about 120 megabytes in size. Now, if you go look at most messaging apps, they're actually not that much smaller, <laughs> to be honest, than, than Messenger. And Messenger was by far not the largest app. We had approached the whole problem, actually, instead of thinking about others, we actually approached it, maybe this is where the word Lightspeed came from, the absolute limit. What is the smallest messaging application that you can build. And then the question became, would you actually be able to do it and make it as full featured as Messenger? So that's kind of, you know, I think Messenger had peaked, like I mentioned, over time, it grew in features, it grew in users, it had to, you know, the more users you have, the more features you have, and the more features you have, actually, the larger the app. And a lot of independent teams working, contributing to the code base, each bringing in their own dependencies, their own framework, their own libraries, their own way of doing things that accumulated over time. So, you know, I think it's probably well known that at this point, we went from something like 110 to 120 megabyte product all the way down to a 30 megabyte product, which is, again, it's not the kind of thing we could have ever done if we did not do a ground up rewrite. As you're looking at this thing, a messenger was a gigantic app when yep. you started this. Yep. And as you just alluded to, you had different generations of teams that had come in and mm -hmm. done their work and brought in their own libraries mm -hmm. and probably little sections or large sections of the code that nobody wanted to touch because mm -hmm. it's just like, well, we don't really know what that yeah. does. <laughs> yeah. It's a black box. Yeah. It's been papered over a thousand times. Yeah. And how do you get your head around the architecture like that? What was the information gathering process? Oh yeah, that's an amazing question. I think that for us, actually, that was, we approached it, we almost, uh, if you're familiar with the approach of bisecting kind of a, a diff or something, we approached it kind of that way where we took the two extremes. On the one extreme, we started ground up with a basic messaging product. So we started with kind of file new project and said, okay, I just want to be able to send and receive text messages, log into Facebook and send and receive text messages. How much work is that? So we use that as one extreme of the baseline. On the other side, we did a very comprehensive partnership with the team where we literally, and again, it's a very difficult thing. Everybody takes it for granted. We're able to kind of amass a very large amount of at least just feature definitions. What are the features that the different teams have contributed? That was number one. And second, a relative rank order of how often are these used? How key are they to kind of the user experience? Were there features that we had already been planning on deprecating? Is this a good opportunity for us to deprecate features? So we basically, on one hand, we had a running piece of code. We did basic messaging. On the other hand, we had giant spreadsheets that had all the features. <laughs> and then we began, we built a baseline. We said, okay, well, if it took us this much to do the messaging features, let's now look at the long tail of everything else and, you know, kind of extrapolate it. Obviously, it's not quite linear like that, but we generally extrapolated from that and started coming up with estimates. We partnered with a lot of the feature teams which again, a very bold decision on their part of saying, hey, if we rewrote this, would you be able to rewrite all these features? And, you know, it took a while and some negotiations and we set out uh, doing it. And like I mentioned, the rest is history. Okay. Describe the process for builds and testing and releasing Messenger, or, or at yes. least when you started on this rewrite process, mm -hmm. what was the life cycle of the Messenger product? Like when it got built and you know, how it got tested, how the release process 
proceeded? What's the day-to-day heartbeat of Messenger? Yeah, Facebook is quite famous as a company that moves fast. I think we have a a well-earned reputation that we tend to be very fast in both execution. We obviously do a substantial effort to maintain quality and we do a high volume of releases. I think often you will see the products are updating every couple of weeks. So you in a mobile product that is releasing through the app store that's updating every couple of weeks or so. Messenger, the way the Messenger code base and most Facebook code bases are developed is you can think of it as a, as a form of trunk-based development. We have a master branch. Actually, we live in a single repository that's well known. So we have a single repository that has all the code bases. So Lightspeed and the existing Messenger were basically in the same repository. They were not in different branches. We were building them both at the same time. The Messenger build, basically, there's a continuous integration system as uh, developers land diffs as they check in code. There are nightly runs that run labs and, and do certain additional tests. There are QA passes that work on these builds. It gets released to employee dog food. It stays in employee dog food for a while. We have a test flight branch that is basically a direct fork off, I believe, release candidate. Then we do a release candidate, and that's the one almost all Facebook employees use. So master is kind of our branch that we use for development. Then it goes to release candidate, which goes to all Facebook employees. And that's the one I believe that detours to test flight. And then that is the build that I believe every couple of weeks rolls into the Apple Store. We did actually accelerate that cycle, I believe, on the Lightspeed side. But I don't know if that kind of answers the question. So we have kind of an active trunk-based development model. And uh, one of the key challenges is we actually had to do this not with one iOS code base. We had to do it with two, actually. We could not ignore, obviously, our large deployed users on what we called at the time classic Messenger iOS, which is the product we replaced with the Lightspeed version, as well as the Lightspeed version. So... I guess I'm a little confused here. Mm-hmm. So you had two versions at a certain point that you were maintaining. You had you were maintaining the, the yeah. old users as well. okay. Yeah, I mean we could not. Again, I think as you can imagine, Messenger is very feature rich and was very highly deployed to hundreds of millions of users on iOS. So we did a couple of things. Like I mentioned in the beginning, we had two products. One was the light product that we used for country testing in some parts around the world, and right. the second one was actually our classic product, and we we're maintaining both builds. At some point, we actually did start doing kind of these uh, dual boot tests where we actually put the uh, Lightspeed code base inside the classic code base and we were able to kind of deploy Lightspeed and roll it out more gradually. Think of it as what we did is we took features in classic and we replaced them with their Lightspeed versions <laughs> on the inside. And we used our kind of testing and experimentation infrastructure to allow us to get a signal on how good are these features working. And we did mm-hmm. that gradually for about a year. And that's why most people did probably didn't notice this. When we actually finally went to Lightspeed, the size of the product was quite large because what we had done is we had kept the old code base, added all the Lightspeed features, and it wasn't until, I believe, actually a week ago or so that we actually now removed all the classic stuff. So now when you go to the the App Store, if you install Messenger, you go to Settings, Storage, iPhone Storage, you look at Messenger, App Size, you should probably see it somewhere in the 29 to 30 meg range. And as you were doing this rewrite, or or actually, I guess... More broadly, can you just tell me about some of the internal tools and technologies that Facebook has developed to make large mobile apps easier to work with? Like, obviously, I know about React Native, but I I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, Facebook is, and that's, you know, as someone, I've been in the industry for a long time. A lot of my tenure had been actually at Microsoft prior to Facebook. Facebook's development infrastructure, I think, is probably has a well-deserved reputation of being legendary. It is unbelievable what the company is able to do. I think Facebook's approach is if there are things that are off the shelf that work, absolutely use them. (laughs) But if things don't scale, a lot of infrastructure that Facebook generally develops, and actually I would say probably for the vast majority of it contributes it back to open source. Those things like mercurial source code control is something that we use internally that is obviously open source and deployed well beyond Facebook. That is one of the pieces. We have a product called Fabricator that think of it as our GitHub kind of pull request equivalent system where you can do code reviews and you can go do you know code approvals. And we have, again, the build farms and the build machines. And we also are the open source sponsor of the Buck project management. Think of that as our version of Bazel or CMake or something like that. So the Facebook developer infra has a non-trivial amount of both standard. We At some point, we use Xcode to code and debug. We use Visual Studio code in our editing in you know some of the native environments. We use Android Studio or IntelliJ on the Android side. But on the other hand, we complement them with technologies that are really designed for the Facebook scale of thousands of active engineers, 
lending, I kid you not, probably thousands of diffs daily into a single you know, repo, a repository. So Mercurial, Buck, on the website, we have all the expansions of the PHP programming language with Hack, with um, what we call the HHVM, Fabricator for source code control and review, and I'm sure I'm missing many. So, Right, and I guess a large swath of these do fit into the development of Messenger. Yes, absolutely. And again, I think, you know, in the beginning, to be honest, when I first showed up at Facebook, I'm like, wait, why aren't we using more off the shelf? And the more I use these tools, the more I recognize, okay, at some point, the scale and the velocity with which Facebook operates is very, requires really specialized tools for build, for code review, for, you know, nightly tests, for even systems. For example, we have a system that lets you subscribe to changes to certain files or directories so that if I'm working on a key area, I want to make sure, I mean, we have an environment that's very open. Any developer at Facebook can change any part of the code. So we tend to empower everyone to do that kind of engineering. But we have these systems that let me subscribe to these files to at least see the changes that are happening and allow me to maybe work with the team to either do them differently or review them to make sure that they are kind of well done. Again, it's an amazing scale and it's kind of a, a sight to behold when you finally wake up one day and you realize, oh my goodness, we are building some of the largest and most complex mobile products the world has ever seen. And it feels like a well-oiled machine. It does work, <laughs> which is pretty wild. Looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vettery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters, so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vettery.com sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's v-e-t-t-e-r-y dot com slash sedaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. So you wrote this, or I guess this, there was this article about Project Lightspeed about rewriting yep. Facebook Messenger and it outlines several strategies that we'll get into. Yep. Things like using the mobile operating system more yep. aggressively, using SQLite more aggressively, yep. some other strategies. Yep. But just from a high level, were there any particular features that were causing a lot of trouble or, or causing a large percentage of the bloat of the code base? Like from a high level, things that yep. the users could understand or people who have used Messenger, what are the areas that were causing the glut of the uh, excess code base? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, again, and, and that was part of the reason we decided to go for a rewrite instead of a remodel. And it's basically, it turned out it wasn't any one thing. If we take a quick step back, and again, I used to jokingly say, look, Messenger is a two-screen app. You know, you have an inbox and you have a thread, a, conver a chat conversation. You know, how bad could it be? Well, it turns out there's a lot more. There's audio and video calls. There's group calls. There's ARFX and group calls. There is the experience of, you know, again, we have an inbox unit for stories. We have an inbox unit for who's active. We have a friends tab that shows you who's online that lets you consume stories. We have an entire visual production system for stories in Messenger. We have photo editing tools built into the product so that it's very quick for you to edit a photo and send it. 
We have thread customization where you can change the color and the style of a given thread. We have nicknames for participants in a thread. We have group conversations where you can admin control. We have business features where you can interact with bots or businesses and the businesses can control the menus in these threads. And I can keep going on and on and on. Every one of those are incredibly important aspects and we can't just rip them out. That was our conclusion. Like if we could just say, hey, well, let's just rip 80% of the features out. After all, we can just do text and media messaging, be done. It turned out that is not the right answer for us. We are a full featured messaging app and we want to stay as a full featured messaging app. And then became kind of attempting what feels counterintuitive. Well, you want to be full featured, but you want to be the smallest. <laughs> How on earth would you do that? And our answer became, well, rewrite. <laughs> so Okay. Well, let's start to dive into this. The first strategy for improving the size while maintaining the performance was to use the mobile operating system more aggressively. So I would assume that when you're writing an iOS app, you're already using the operating system in a a pretty aggressive fashion. What do you you mean (laughs) by being able to use the operating system more aggressively? Yeah, so actually, let me take a quick step out of even how, you know, I think the way we approached the entire project, some of us are kind of fans of cars, was the way we would actually build a sports car or a race car. So basically kind of when you build a race car, there's kind of two things you would do. One is there kind of, there's a set of rules you have to follow. I mean, we can't cheat and say, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll compromise safety or we'll do something like that. And then you scrutinize everything. So the rules for us were actually fairly clear. This had to be the full messenger. There was no compromise. We're going to do the full messenger. It had to be a full feature product. The scrutiny is that's when we began asking ourselves questions. And one of the first question is we looked at our existing UI code and we actually, we looked at existing entire code base of Messenger and we said, is there a better way to write this? You know, Messenger, like I mentioned, had grown organically over, you know, four or five years. And at some point, Messenger had acquired a lot of features that Messenger ultimately took out. You may or may not remember, we had like a games experience inside of Messenger that we took out long before Project Lightspeed. We had a rooms experience where we can try and do bulletin board style, large scale room kind of experiences that we had tried. And so we had built a lot of infrastructure, user interface infrastructure for those types of experiences. And those basically are abstractions you start putting on top of the operating system. You've probably seen a lot of frameworks. So for us, you know, one of the first questions we asked was, do we need to use frameworks or could we just write it as plain? The question we asked ourselves, could we just write it the way the Apple programmer's guide say? You know, write your view controller, write your view, avoid writing custom views if you don't have custom draw. You know, kind of going back to basics, that was number one. Second is we started asking our assumptions. We had looked, again, the operating systems are not static things. They evolve every year. You probably see Apple and Google do very substantial advances in their operating systems. Large applications like Messenger, it's very hard for them to leverage the latest and greatest the operating system has to offer. Not necessarily because of uh, platform reach, because Android addresses that with Android X and iOS obviously addresses that with very large update deployments of iOS. So we started asking ourselves, you know, auto layout was not very performant on low-end devices a few years back. Is it still that non-performant? There's not the answer is no, it's actually not bad. So we started using more and more of these things. So that became a new principle, which is look at the latest and greatest that Apple and Google have to offer and find a way to do it that reduces your need to incorporate a framework, to incorporate additional libraries, to add levels of abstraction. So basically the use the OS was a euphemism for, okay, we know we need to write this code. Is there a better way to write it? And that's kind of how we approached it. So examples, like I mentioned, we use storyboards in cases where we felt it's okay to use iOS storyboards if you're familiar with those, which is kind of a declarative UI where you can build view controllers and views without having to do any code. We used constraint layout in some cases, we used auto layout, auto guided layouts. In other cases, we used standard iOS uh, view controllers and again, took a lot of the abstractions out and just tried to get closer to the OS and remove any kind of abstraction between us and the OS. Some parts of the rewrite were in C, right? Can you tell me about the parts which you rewrote in C? Yes, and that was one of the big decisions before we even made the decision to do Project Lightspeed and kind of start with iOS. We definitely had our eye set on the full user base of Messenger, including Android. And one of our realizations was, which is kind of, again, it goes back to looking at our existing code base. Messenger is a database app. It's very database centric. It's not that hard you know, to kind of imagine you have tables for your threads and your messages and your participants and your attachments inside a message and your contacts. So those five tables are kind of the heart and soul of an app like Messenger. 
when we looked at those, we started looking at the logic that you run when you do things. You know, when you send a message, what happens? Well, you put it in the database because you want to be able to run the UI off the database. You schedule something to try and send the message. Ultimately, it's going to go to the server. The server may actually produce a more complete version of the message. It may resolve it and do integrity checks and things like that for it. And when do you send a message, the thread, the conversation you're in, you probably want to mark it as read clearly. You probably want to change its timestamp. So we had all this database logic. And when we started looking at our existing code bases, we're finding a lot of that logic is sitting in a platform dependent way. So that would be what it would be in Objective-C on iOS and in Java on Android. And the more we looked at it, we said, wait, this is all basically very general purpose logic. It does not have UI views or UI view controllers on iOS. It does not have views and fragments and activities on Android. It's basically pure data manipulation. So our insight was, what if we actually took that and we made the core part of the schema, the business logic, and the sync logic of everything in Messenger be portable and cross-platform? So that was the first question. So we decided the answer is, after studying enough of our code bases, the answer is yes. And then we asked ourselves, what's the best way to do cross-platform? You could probably tell we are fans of, of SQLite. <laughs> and SQLite is a very, very popular, very successful cross-platform library. That's one of the most highly deployed libraries in the world. It is in portable C code. We decided to kind of follow the footsteps of SQLite. And we had one more reason for why we chose C that on iOS that we thought would actually give us an advantage. And I'm happy to get into that. It had to do with Core Foundation, if you're curious. You know, actually, you mentioned that this idea that it's easy to think of Messenger as a, a database-centric app. I don't know if that's actually in, intuitive. I mean, for me, when yeah. I was reading about that, that was actually a little bit confusing to me. Yeah. So when I think of Messenger... I think of like, I load this thing yep. and maybe it fetches some data from the server yep. and then it loads things into memory. Like it yep. loads Your lists of, yeah. Yeah. Lists of like in-memory yeah. representations of what my friend list yep. is, the conversations I have open. I don't imagine <laughs> an embedded database sitting on my phone yep. that is representing the objects of my messenger app. I literally imagine just in-memory yeah, object do, do, do a fetch from a server and then render a thread list. That is an yeah, awesome question. That, that, yeah. That's what yeah. I, that's what <laughs> yeah, I that's, imagine. So, that is so, an awesome question, Jeffrey. Yeah, so here's the deal with messaging, though. Messaging is a transactional experience. People have seconds, right? They, you want to launch the app, and you want to be able to, you know, imagine, again, you're sitting at your desk, and you're running late, you're getting up, you grab the phone, you unlock the phone, you launch Messenger, you want to type a message, you want to send it. You literally have seconds. So if you have to wait on network conditions to even get the conversation list, to even resolve your contacts, to even do anything. So one of the key attributes of messaging, very different than say a feed product like Instagram or Facebook, is that you actually truly try and avoid getting off the network. You can be dealing with, you don't want the user to wait. They don't have time to wait. You can wait downloading a video on your feed. You know you're downloading a video from the internet. There's nothing, you would not want the phone in the background to go download that video for you. So one of the unique parts of messaging in general is very transactional, very high volume, a very large number of small interactions. So this is, by the way, not new. I would say our, my belief is actually almost every messaging product starts with an online experience. They just fetch messages from the server and they let you reply. And they quickly, by the way, email is not that different as well. It, it doesn't take you long to realize, no, 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 no. I'm, one, I'm spending time refetching data that I can just keep. It doesn't change that much. So you start keeping the data. Second, you say, wait, do I really want to block the user as they're sending multiple messages while I try and communicate over the network? No, the answer is I want to defer I want to batch things. I want to defer them. Third, the data that you actually are trying to render in the user interface over time grows and becomes more complex. You're not just trying to get a conversations list. You're also trying to get a list above it of users and who's active. You have nicknames. You have themes. You have profile pictures. You have group profile pictures. So you basically start moving gradually less from an online to actually, I don't want to use the word offline, but a more device-centric experience that only goes on the network to do the things it absolutely has to, which is deliver a message or give you a new message. And that's the key of how a lot of messaging and actually email applications try and achieve speed. Unless they are HTML based, which is that's a different kind of category of experiences. So again, if you're familiar with something like Microsoft Outlook or Microsoft Exchange, you can almost trace that exact 
history back to almost those two products as well. I happen to have worked on both a lot many years ago. And history oh, wow. kind of history kind of keeps repeating itself as well. You start with <laughs> an online thing and then you realize, wait, the client is being very sensitive to every network hiccup, every server load hiccup, in cases where it doesn't need to. It's doing resolving things it should have already had. Why not keep them? Why not use them? And that's what leads you down the database path. I guess it's worth talking about SQLite here. SQLite is a popular embedded database that people use for mobile applications in many cases. What does it mean to, I think we've done an entire show on SQLite, but for people who haven't listened to that show, why is SQLite useful for a mobile application like Messenger? I mean, why do we need a specific type of database like SQLite? Why not use, uh, or can you use Postgres or Mongo on on your client? Oh, that's an awesome question. Yeah, as well. So SQLite is, again, it has the light term. <laughs> it was built to be an embedded database. It was actually built exactly for that purpose. Postgres or SQL Server or MySQL or Mongo or any of those products, those are database servers. They are built from ground up to support thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of concurrent users. They manage threads. They run their own memory pools. They manage connections and concurrency. They do all of these things. That is an enormous overhead for a mobile device. Basically, that database is fundamentally single user. It exists for one app, one user on that app using that experience. SQLite is unique and maybe you could say both fortunate, you know, again, both lucky and good in that it was built for that purpose. It is small. It is lightweight. It is embedded. It does not take over your threads, your process, your memory. It lets you manage all of these things. It's there to give you access to persistent data and for you to be transactionally so that you have kind of correctness and you can do multiple operations in one transaction and they're all consistent. And you also have a rich SQL query language where you can do these complex queries that you need to do to construct your user interface for your messages or your conversations. So it's very well built for this purpose. It's also C code and a very portable library. It's already widely deployed in iOS. It's widely deployed in Android. It is easy to deploy to the Mac to, actually it's pre-deployed on the Mac. It's easy to, to deploy to Windows. We also have messaging and messaging related experiences in some of our other devices like Oculus headsets or portal video conferencing devices. So SQLite is a great asset in that regard. It's almost, and I I would be surprised if most messaging apps don't use SQLite. We just chose to use it maybe a little bit more methodically is the best way I can describe that. Does SQLite sit in memory or is it on disk? Does it just have different caching layers like, you know, many database systems? Yeah, in SQLite, basically, the way you want to think of it is a set of C APIs. You use them to kind of open a database file and then you can execute SQL statements against that file and you can insert, update, delete, or select from that file. It does have a built-in caching layer and it's actually quite good and it's smart about figuring out, obviously, it has an index system that lets you create indices and figure out how you can fetch data very quickly, but it also has temporary tables and memory databases. And we actually do take advantage of temporary tables for things like typing indicators or online status, things state that does not need to survive the application restart. Hmm. So we actually, again, we use tables for everything, basically. It's kind of our dominant data structure. So SQLite is, is a very good fit for us. And again, it allowed us to avoid building dedicated data systems for every one of these experiences. Did you build some kind of ORM system for accessing the database from the messenger client? That's another good question. So ORM is an object relational mapping system. SQLite, like most modern databases, is a relational database, right? So it has tables and joins. It uses relational algebra at its heart for you to express, and it's dominated more by queries. And most teams indeed end up building a mapping layer between the relational system and some object hierarchy that they can then consume in Objective-C or Java. We actually decided not to do that, Jeffrey. We decided to actually embrace the fact that it's relational and instead just make it easier for you in Objective-C or Java to consume those result sets and for you to issue these queries, including these complex queries. So we ended up producing kind of a stored procedure language on top of SQLite that lets you express these complex SQL-related business logic and made it easy for you to call that as an API. And that API returns a result set And the result set, basically think of it as a table, a memory table instead of an array of objects. And the memory table has clean APIs, both on the Java side on Android and the objective side on iOS for you to be able to access columns. So we embrace the relationalness of SQLite 
in our product. And we exposed that all the way up and actually without, avoided us creating more mapping layers, again, more frameworks and more abstractions. Just to spend a little more time on the database side of things, the embedded database side of things, tell me a little bit about the schema. Like, what are you modeling in the SQLite database? Oh, that's an awesome question. So, I mean, again, this is a, a topic I could probably... Let me say this. Messenger, like I said, is deceptively complex. We literally have hundreds of tables. That's hard to imagine that a product like this, but mostly because we decided to model the entire application as relational. So we have what we call the core tables. Those are the things you would expect. I have my threads, which are my conversations. I have my messages, which is text messages. I have attachments, which is the media that kind of attaches to these bubbles as how you see a photo or a video. I have contacts, as you can imagine. And a conversation may have multiple participants, maybe one-on-one or a group, and you have... So that's kind of the foundation. We call those the core tables. Then we have a bunch of system tables. These are things that we use to be able to sync data. You know, how far are you in your conversation list? What new messages we need to fetch? Any mutation you do, if you change your profile picture on the device, how do we upload that profile picture up to the cloud? That sort of thing. So we have kind of sync and system supporting tables. The vast majority of the additional tables are all related to the features. Like I mentioned, we may have tables to track in memory as you're typing in a thread to show you the typing indicators. We may have tables that show you the online status, you know, that little green dot you see in Messenger (laughs) against any contact anywhere you see them. So you can now imagine the join that we would do between contacts and presence to show you that green dot everywhere we show you a profile picture. We have, again, when you render names in a thread, we have to do a join because there may be nicknames and you can actually give people nicknames in a thread. So we have nickname tables. When we load the thread, we have to load the participant list. We have to load any thread customization you might have done. You might have picked a custom emoji for sending in a thread and so on and so on. The last set of stickers you used, your favorite stickers, the actual sticker packs that you have subscribed to, metadata about sticker packs in the sticker store. I can keep going on and on. So all of these become tables. And for us, they all get integrated into a, like I said, it's a schema that we have divided into what we call regions. And we have a core tables region. We have a system region. And we have these regions that are partitioned across the feature teams. When you load something like a friend list or an active conversation or something like that, I assume you put some kind of in-memory representation into memory and then, you know, an update to that in-memory representation, there must be some transaction that occurs to propagate that to the database layer, right? Yes. That's actually an awesome, again, another meta design question. We decided to build Lightspeed from the ground up with what you would consider a reactive design pattern. Interesting. And in our case, what we mean reactive design pattern is you don't do two-way data binding. You don't mutate data. What you do is you basically, you read data, you have an old representation of data, you get an indication that data has changed somehow. And in our case, again, it can change in a lot of different ways. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then you get the new version, you diff them, and then you produce a diff and you render the UI changes based on the diff between old data and new data. In our world, the way mutation happens is I don't want to call it out of band, but we almost want to treat it out of band. You mutate by calling functions, by calling store procedures that mutate the data. But you're not the only one mutating the data. Remember, the server could be coming in and mutating data for you. That's how you receive a new message. You didn't do anything on the client. The server deployed data to the client, ran a particular store procedure, which inserted that message into your messages table. The user interface gets a notification, there's new data, it gets the new data, diffs it against the old data, and renders an up-to-date message list. But that's no different than if you were in the composer in that very same thread and you hit send. It was you calling that stored procedure that mutated the data, but you didn't know it. Almost anything could have called that stored procedure. So we're very big on the reactive design pattern. There's many other terms for it. We call it kind of database-centric, maybe, view of programming or a database-first design pattern or a single source of truth. You hear a lot about kind of the single source of truth And these reactive design patterns, especially with the emergence of even more modern, not just React and React Native, but also Swift UI and Combine on the iOS side and Jetpack on the Android side. So it's actually not that different than those worlds. Totally. The single source of truth in this case is the backend database? Ah, actually, the single source of truth, as far as the user interface is concerned, is the client database. Got it. The SQLite database. Yeah, the SQLite database. And the reason for that is a lot of the things, remember when I mentioned earlier, we're trying to not get on the network all the time. So we do a lot of things optimistically in the local database. And then we sync those with the server. And most of the time, 
the server comes back and says, okay, yes, this is good. <laughs> so what you had done optimistically works. So there's no need to make changes. Sometimes the server may actually do things, you know, again, sometimes the server may expand it. For example, the delivery receipt, the little blue check that you see, or the read the small profile picture that you see that someone read your message, that's the server mutating the status on your message. Mm. It was something you optimistically sent. It went to the server. As far as the user interface was concerned, this message is great. The server did not reject it. So there's nothing new to do. But eventually the server comes back and says, hey, I need to mutate this for you because the status has changed. It was delivered. It was read. And now you do the, the status update on. Over the last few months, I've started hearing about Retool. Every business needs internal tools, but if we're being honest, I don't know of many engineers who really enjoy building internal tools. It can be hard to get engineering resources to build back-office applications, and it's definitely hard to get engineers excited about maintaining those back-office applications. Companies like DoorDash and Brex and Amazon use Retool to build custom internal tools faster. The idea is that internal tools mostly look the same. They're made out of tables and drop-downs and buttons and text inputs. Retool gives you a drag-and-drop interface so engineers can build these internal UIs in hours, not days. And they can spend more time building features that customers will see. Retool connects to any database and API. For example, if you want to pull in data from Postgres, you just write a SQL query. You drag a table onto the canvas. If you want to try out Retool, you can go to retool.com slash sedaily. That's R-E-T-O-O-L dot com slash sedaily. And you can even host Retool on-premise if you want to keep it ultra-secure. I've heard a lot of good things about Retool from engineers who I respect. So check it out at retool.com slash sedaily. I've done a lot of shows about React and tracing the origins of this one-way data binding and why this emerged in popularity within Facebook, I think is an interesting story. From what I can tell, mm-hmm. it was necessitated by the reality of Facebook being this highly transactional multi-user application where you have all these little changes going on across the application at a single time because like you think about why did react come out of facebook as opposed to amazon or google well i mean amazon and google there's a lot of data there's a lot of stuff going on but you think about the biggest parts of the application they kind of get updated in batch like you have a big you know search index that gets updated every you know in epochs and then then the search index is updated. And then you have the same thing with Amazon, like the product catalog gets updated every night. But with Facebook, it's this totally user-driven thing where you can't really predict how how the changes are going to occur. And so you need some scalable way of really having a nice update system. And that seems to be why it was like the necessity of having something that would do a better job than two-way data binding that led to just the dominance of, of that reactive pattern throughout Facebook. That is, you said this quite a bit better than I would have been able to. That is spot on. Any environment where you have a large amount of change that can occur to the data, keeping that in sync with user interface becomes an almost intractable problem. And like I mentioned, mobile apps started being very simple, but it's not surprising. They've grown in complexity. That's why you see iOS embracing Combine and embracing Swift UI which is a purely reactive design pattern, same on the Jetpack Android side. I think that insight that Facebook had on the server initially in our HTML world, you know, in our web world, which was dominated by enormous amount of data change and UI change and coordinating all of that became impossible until the insight was, no, if you go to a single source of truth, you basically, you decouple the read and the write path, you let the write mutate data give you a signal that data has changed, then the UI layer can then do the uh, proper read and then a diff model, which also produces higher quality user experiences. You can now animate the changes. What's changed between the time I was looking at this feed and how the feed changed or somebody, you know, how many people liked the story or the comments that came in on the post. So 
I think that is the reality, not just, it used to be the reality of the server and the web. Now it's becoming the reality of mobile apps because mobile apps are becoming quite a bit more complex, which is not surprising. That's just the nature of software. Did this rewrite entirely encompass the client side, the iOS side of things, or was there significant work done on the server side as well? Uh, That's a great question. One of the reasons, yeah, the answer is yes, (laughs) on the server as well. What we had done with the server, one of the things, you know, we had some constraints. So one of the constraints was we can't change the actual backend that uh, stores and delivers messages. One that's very highly deployed, that is probably the largest, most deployed messaging environment in the world because it's also not just used in Facebook Messenger, it's used in the little chat bubbles when you chat with someone on the web in Facebook, it is used in FB Lite products, it is used in our Android product, which was not yet Lightspeed based. So we knew we could not change the actual messenger infrastructure. But one of our design goals was this single source of truth and having a single uniform database-centric view of the world required us to build a new unique asset on the server. At the last FA, two of my colleagues, Joshua Evanson and Jeremy Fine, talked about the details of that broker. One way to kind of quickly describe it, the existing product had somewhere between 20 and 30, we don't really know the exact, I don't know the exact number, of independent systems. Some of them were dealing with messaging related things. So, you know, the stuff you would expect, sending messages, receiving messages. But the contact system was a very separate sync stream with a very separate schema, with a very different system that relates with Facebook user accounts, Facebook users, integrity, who's allowed to message whom, etc. Stories were coming from a different backend. Presence was coming from a different backend. Typing indicators was coming from a different backend. What we had decided in Project Lightspeed is to build a single uniform client way of doing that. And the only way we could do that is to build kind of a counterpart on the server. So we built a technology on the server, we call it the Lightspeed Broker. And what it is, it's kind of the brother or sister of Lightspeed on the server. Its job, if you actually, if you're familiar with Gang of Four design patterns, it's probably, it's a kind of an aggregator adapter design pattern. It basically takes one uniform sync approach and data approach and then federates it back out to the existing system. So we don't, we're not in a position to go redo all of these systems. So the broker was an absolute key part of what allowed us to keep the light speed code small because we don't have all these independent sync systems. We don't have independent threads, each one going on the network. We don't have network work streams kind of fighting with each other, going on top of each other, around each other. We have a more, again, we built a freeway basically between the client and the server and we regulated the traffic between the client and the server. And the old product was probably closer to an organically developed cities where you know people can kind of find shortcuts and go down the streets and find another part of the city. And eventually you end up with kind of unmanageable traffic problems as a result. So that's what we did. There was a platform that you built called MSYS, MSYS? Yes, MSYS, To handle yes. much, much of the logic for Messenger. Can you talk about what MSYS is? Yeah, that is the C code based implementation of Messenger. Like I mentioned, when we had looked at it, we realized we were doing a lot of business logic, a lot of schema, a lot of sync logic in the UI layer. We were doing that in Java and Objective-C. And our intuition was, again, I think sometimes teams go very extreme about cross-platform one way or the other. Sometimes teams try and do the entire app as cross-platform. And that's very difficult to do, especially given how rich modern UI platforms are like UIKit, SwiftUI, Android, Jetpack. So... On the other hand, then people shift to the opposite. Well, let me just do everything the Java way. Let me do everything the Objective-C way. And we felt that there's a balance in between. We felt that the core schema, the core business logic, the thing that says when I send a message, America thread is red, that did not need to be Java. That did not need to be Objective-C. There's nothing UI about it. There's nothing iOS-y or Android-y about that idea. It's a database idea. So we took all of that. We took authentication. We took the core schema. We took all the core business logic. We took that universal sync system that I just talked about earlier, and we made that into a single subsystem. We call that MSYS. It's unclear whether M is messaging or messenger, but you can take it either way. It's probably very messenger-centric. And that is the asset that we believe is going to be the cross-platform asset that will allow us to take a lot of the Lightspeed experience, not just to iOS, but to Android and the rest of kind of the family of applications long-term. I guess it's worth talking a little bit more about the long-term implications of this project. So this was completely focused on iOS, but I imagine that there are other principles you could take from this rewrite and go and apply to Android, the, the Android Messenger application or 
the desktop web messenger yep. application, or like you said, Instagram or yes. WhatsApp, or I don't know if there's some kind of messaging system in Oculus, yeah. but messaging is so important to the whole lifeblood of Facebook. So what are some of the areas of this rewrite that you can reuse in future messaging rewrites or greenfield projects? In one word, emphasis. That was our answer. Got and it. actually, one thing I should mention, when we had started, the very, very beginning bootstrap was 100% in Objective-C. And then we actually paused for quite a while and we decided it was because, again, we have an enormous number of users on Android. And we have, again, Mark had talked last year, I believe, at F8 about kind of this messaging-centric evolution of the social network. I think it became clear to all of us how central messaging is to the future of all social networking. So we paused and we actually took that Objective-C code and we redid it all as C code and we bootstrapped it with JNI on Android early. Throughout the development cycle, we always had Android in mind when we built Emsys. And we worked with a partner team. We have a great product on Android called Messenger Lite for Android, which is a very small and very focused version. It's kind of an amazingly executed piece of technology, <laughs> not as feature rich as the full Messenger product. So we partnered with that team to kind of keep us honest and to see if Emsys could be something that even in that extreme case, which is something that is very focused only on messaging, only on very low-end devices, would be able to use it. So we partnered with that team and they kept us honest throughout the whole cycle. And we're fairly confident that Emsys really is our systemic approach for how we bring messages outside of iOS, Messenger iOS, to Messenger Android, to Portal, to Oculus, to... We actually have, I believe we have actually launched a desktop product. We've talked about a desktop product, which is a rich, complete application. That one actually, when it launches, I don't actually know if it's launched or not. When it launches, it also has Emsys inside as well. And that one is on the Mac and Windows and does not use the web. It uses Electron for UI, but it has a full sync Emsys based. So it works offline. It works kind of as a rich desktop app. And that Emsys platform, I'm assuming that's tightly coupled to... Facebook infrastructure, this is probably not going to be something that's going to be open source to the future, right? Not that part of it, because yeah, I think it's, it's highly dependent on things like Facebook authentication and the representation of users at Facebook and the Facebook integrity systems that right. tell you whether someone can... So it's definitely kind of, I would say, it's very focused on that. What we have done instead is there are parts of the way we built MSYS that as we look back, we feel like, I think our approach at Facebook is anything that we think it's not even a proprietary issue, it's just a practicality issue. Anything that is highly bound to data structures, the presence of services that would take somebody would be impossible for someone to implement, we tend to keep those in-house, we don't bother. Anything that we feel can generalize, those are the ones we start looking at saying, is there value in open sourcing this? And that's kind of the process that we're doing right now, is kind of doing that triage of saying, we believe the answer, by the way, is yes. There are things we did that don't really have a unique tie-in to Facebook infrastructure that would be valuable for other people just like they were valuable for us. Hmm. And we're happy to share those. Cool. I'd like to know a little bit about the management of this project. How many people were working on Project Lightspeed? Project Lightspeed literally started, I mean, the inception was actually really two engineers and one of the VPs of engineering on Messenger who kind of caught wind of that and started going that route. I would say it went from two quickly to about 10, then to 20. And it was probably at 20 for, I would say, for about that year when we were kind of, before we decided we're just going to do the full rewrite. And then I would say it went well over 100 engineers, probably in the scale of 120, 130 engineers, just on the iOS side. And wow. remember, we were doing parallel work in other areas to make sure we're still engaging on Android, we're still doing. So it's a very large and complex project. 120 engineers that were working yeah. on the, on the uh, messenger rewrite. Yes, at some point. Incredible. And again, it's not, yeah. And if you can imagine, again, it goes back to, well, we needed the presence experience. We needed the bots experiences. We needed the business experience. We needed the business search experience. We need, again, the stories experience. We need the visual composition experience. One of the challenges of Messenger, if you are on an iPhone, you don't use iMessage to manage your account, right? And one of the things we tend to do at Facebook is we allow you from any app to do full account management. You can actually sign up. <laughs> you can you know, disable your, you can do all of these things on your account, even in the app itself. So we take on things that a lot of, you know, again, in Messenger, we include audio and video calling integrated into the experience and not in a separate app that we can build and deploy independently. So you can say that Messenger is not an app. It's actually kind of a, a platform of a number of communications experiences between people. And that requires a lot of people. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. And 
if you were going to start over from scratch today, how would you have done this project differently? Honestly, I would say the only thing, and again, even now, it might still be too early, we would take a much closer look at Combine and Swift UI on iOS. On Android, you know, again, I would definitely take a look at, at Jetpack. Again, we made the assumptions two years ago, obviously, SwiftUI was nowhere around and Combine and these types of things. I would say that probably would be the top thing. MSYS itself, maybe one of the differences, you know, again, there are some internal mechanics. For example, we, we got the teams to build these store procedures for their logic, and we kind of made them more embedded on the MSYS side instead of on the feature side. So we're doing some refactoring and cleanup of things like that. Those are minor things. But I would say the user interface layer, again, going back to our principles of use the operating system, I think it's time to start for a lot of teams to actually start asking fresh questions. We might be a little too early still, but there is the rise of the new user experience and data architecture stacks, both on iOS and Android. And I think they're definitely worthy of the teams paying very close attention to them. So given your deep knowledge from this project, and I'm sure you've, you've done some other work before in the same area, do you have a, uh, a bleak or an optimistic perspective when it comes to cross-platform mobile development? I think I have a cautious. And again, personally, and this is definitely not a, necessarily a Facebook representation, but my own opinion is that I think the extremes don't work. If you try and make your entire app cross-platform, including the UI, actually I have experience in that as well, it's just a lot more difficult. That's a lot more. And tracking the advances that Apple and Google are going to make are going to drive you crazy. They're advancing these operating systems at the slowest pace once a year. It's actually really more than once a year. You know, they have hundreds and sometimes thousands of engineers evolving these platforms. They're building tools to support them. So be careful about cross-platform UI. But the opposite is also true. Ask yourself, again, is this piece of code you're writing, what is iOS about it? What is iOS about updating a table in SQLite to say that I need to mark a thread as red? Why does that have to be platform-specific? So I think I'm still, again, in hindsight, looking back, I think it was one of the principles we used that worked well for us. We empowered the team to use greatest, latest, and greatest. One of the jokes on the team was don't be embarrassed to stack overflow how you do something <laughs> on iOS because we're actually just an iOS app and for the UI layer. So I think that is, I would say, caution and balance is kind of warranted in this case. Be careful about full cross-platform, but also be equally careful about, well, then just let me do the whole thing in Java or let me do the whole thing in Objective-C. It doesn't. Now, if for a very small app, I would absolutely do it that way. But if you're at the scale of a Facebook or a Google or an Apple, you know, Apple may not care about the Android side, but Facebook or a Google at least, who, or a Microsoft, and you're working on these large cross-platform efforts, I think the balance is incredibly important there. And having clarity on the principles you use to decide, okay, applying a razor that the team that every developer can use and it's crystal clear. Okay, this code I'm writing, okay, it has UI view, boom, Objective-C, no question. It, all it's doing is manipulating database, boom, I am doing SQL, <laughs> I'm not doing Objective-C. That kind of thing would really help. And I know we're up against time, but just because I would be remiss if I didn't ask this, so there was not use of React Native in this rewrite? No, there was no React Native. There's no cross-platform user interface in Project Lightspeed. The entire UI layer is UI kit Objective-C based and everything portable was done in C, in SQLite. By the way, the existing messenger did not use React Native either. So I think there was somebody online was saying, we abandoned React Native. We actually had never used it. We had some small features at some point that used React Native. I don't honestly remember what the feature was. And then that feature was long before Project Lightspeed. The feature was deprecated, so our need for the framework was deprecated. But Messenger, the existing Messenger, was a very UI kit Objective-C app. And the current Messenger Android is very activity fragment Java app, very uh, kind mm. of uh, platform-specific app as well. Mm. Got it. I guess just, just to close off, so the modus operandi for not using React Native is just because the, the performance wasn't good enough? It's also to leverage the latest and greatest advances in EOS. We want to be able to use all the latest gesture recognizers, iOS Got animation, it. like I mentioned, storyboards. We want to be able to do, you know, again, layout inside of Xcode interface builder where we can. If when, when we switch to Swift UI, we want to be able to use the canvas and previews and all of these things. Again, it's that principle of, and it's harder for, again, I think cross-platform user interfaces are incredibly useful for certain classes of applications. Messaging in particular is kind of a flagship, yeah. it's a utility, it's an electricity of the modern mobile era we're in. These may not be the best applications to try and do cross-platform UI in. There Got may it. be a lot of other applications where it makes a ton of sense to do this in. Mosin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. 
Same here, Jeffrey. It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much. If you are selling enterprise software, you want to be able to deliver that software to every kind of customer. Some enterprises are hosted on-prem, some enterprises are on AWS, there might be a different cloud provider they use entirely, and you want to be able to deliver to all of these kinds of enterprises. Gravity is a product for delivering software to any of these kinds of potential environments or data centers that your customers might want to run applications in. You can think of Gravity as something that you use to copy-paste entire production environments across clouds and data centers. It puts a bubble of consistency around your application so that you can write it once and deploy it anywhere. And Gravity is open source, so you can look into the code and understand how it works. Gravity is trusted by leading companies including MuleSoft, Splunk, and Anaconda. You can go to gravitational.com slash sedaily to try Gravity Enterprise free for 60 days. That's gravitational.com slash sedaily to find out how applications can run the way that your customers expect in their preferred data center. That's gravitational.com slash sedaily. Thanks to the team behind Gravity, the company Gravitational, for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. 